Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. It's a big week when RHAP is on the road in Chicago. Check out my live show from Chicago. That's going to be up on Thursday, Wednesday night. Shannon Gus is going to be live with you with Kelly Wentworth after Survivor. And we preview the Dondi finale with Dealer No Deal Island host Joe Manganello. all right here on RHAP. We know reality TV. I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from unceded Gadigal land. I'm Mari Forth. And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. Subscribe to our feed at robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed to get your true crime on Tuesdays. Yes. Subscribe, get the exclusive drop a day before we drop on the main feed on Wednesdays. Sarah, what are we talking about? Well, let's open today's file. We watched Captive Audience, a real American horror story. Now, that's on Hulu. It was directed by Jessica Dimmick. It's a three-part docuseries. Each of these episodes is about 45 minutes long, although I must say, Murray, they seem shorter to me. Um, Yeah, strangely. uh, We have complained before about things being too long. Yeah. Um, so this series is looking at the separate cases of two brothers, Stephen and Carrie Stainer. Um, we can't do it alone, of course. To help us break it all down, we have a captivating guest. I wish you could see them. They're wearing a deer stalker, librarian, <laughs> board game enthusiast and winner of Survivor New Zealand Thailand, Lisa Holmes. Welcome to Crime Scene. Thank you. Tina Koto, everyone. So happy to be here. So happy to be here. It's very, I love your podcast so much. And when you're like saying, oh, it's going to be oh, so excited. <laughs> <laughs> oh, kia ora. Right. Um, so, Lisa, uh, we ask all our guests, we were going to ask you as well, what's your true crime origin story? How did you get into true crime? What do you like about it and why? Well, with my, my last name is Holmes. It's the name, last name I was born with. And so with that last name, really liked Sherlock Holmes. So mm-hmm. was always into mysteries and detective stories and things like that. And even though they weren't contemporary, Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper um, have a lot of crossover in terms of books and media and things like that. Um, so that sort of, I was aware of, especially the Jack the Ripper murders at quite a young, <laughs> quite a young age. Oh. <laughs> it was fun. Then I also watched Unsolved Mysteries, like the American version, way too young. Mm. Very scared of a lot. Not of a fan. We've already gone over this. I am not a fan of those. <laughs> I'm a <Yeah>. huge fan. <laughs> so, just interested in that sphere. Always, you know, big, big reader. 
so interested in books about mysteries and things like that. Um, but I think part of the reason why I really liked Unsolved Unsolved Mysteries, I know true crime is different, but you know, I sort of concern them concern them all together at that age. Is mm-hmm. that it's just a way to take you outside that very I had a very isolated family unit, not very mm-hmm. many sort of social connections or extended family. And so it's just a way to see into other people's lives at quite vulnerable or sort of interesting times. Um, so I think that's why it sort of it always appealed to me when I was a child. And um, yeah, and then when I was a bit older and I worked in the public library, there was a real like sort of 90s peak of this quite interesting true crime, like not just told in a straightforward way, like things like In the Garden of Good and Evil, Suspicions mm. of Mr. Witcher, The Orchard Thief, The Surgeon of Crawthorn, Perfect Murder, Perfect Town. And they really like sucked me in for a long time. Like, you know, 90s, early 2000s, true crime books. I can just talk your ear off. But then as I got a bit older um, and sort of connected with myself a bit more, I w- turned away from the sort of suffering side of it. Like, because uh, true crime can quite easily tilt into, oh, these horrible things happened. Like how, it's almost like torture pornish. Mm-hmm. And I, I struggle with that side of it even today. So when I watch, so my like, Intake of true crime properties is much moderated. Yeah, there's a lot of things I just won't even sort of look at or yeah. consider. Mm-hmm. That yeah. makes sense. And you're like speaking to my heart because as a like a military kid, I always I was always had my my nose in a book, like always. Now, was it true crime? Not necessarily. I was a fiction, like I like fictional crime. Like I it was a big um I love, even though he kind of phones it in now, I'm a, I was a big James Patterson fan. Like every single series that he did, Women's Murder Club, Alex Cross, I used to consume all of those. I'm a big John Saul fan. Like that's that line between super um, supernatural killing type type of thing. And um, I actually read uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, not realizing it was a true story. <laughs> <laughs> until I was done with it. I was like, oh, this is, this happened. <laughs> so I, I love that. And I can't wait to, to I I, I'm, I would be shocked if you don't have any book su- suggestions for your, your the list. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I used to just voraciously read everything, you know, true, fictional and all of that. And I distinctly remember there was a time I, I, I know the name of the author and the and the book, but I won't say it. But it started with the discovery of the body, and a bird had been put into the ca- her rib cage. And I remember, I just closed the book. I thought, no, actually, I don't need to do that. And that mm-hmm. was a real turn for me. And I got a lot more discriminating, I, I suppose, as I was, you know, older and maturing and realizing what I wanted to engage with. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that suffering. That is in fiction, particularly uh, often at the expense of, of women and children. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's too it's it's too much, and it's too it can be too unexamined. So um, with the true stuff, yes, because we do need to look at it clear eyed and and see what it is that we need to draw from it and how we can deal with it. But when it's in fiction, when it just goes too far, it, it's it's too much for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. For me, it was always like a like an arm's reach because I always knew it was fictional. Like um, I'm a big Dean Koontz fan as well. Like oh, yeah. I didn't, re- yeah, I didn't realize how much like science fiction was it really was in some of his books because. I always connected to the the crime part of it, like the trying to figure out who the big bad guy was. And so if you would have asked me like, oh, are you a, a sci-fi fan? I would probably have said no at the time. But now growing up, like reading all of the like Game of Thrones, which is just so science fiction, I'm like, oh, I do like science fiction. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always was the type of person who never read nonfiction. Like I didn't read my first memoir until I was like in my early twenties because I just wanted to escape the world, but also still have those elements of, for me, it was always the problem solving element of it. Just trying to figure out who is the bad guy, who is the person that they're looking for. So those, those fictional detective stories, I've read all of the Sherlock Holmes books and I think it's like a lost art. I feel like people don't don't read those books anymore. Like you kind of go towards like the the contemporary Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes stuff when the the short stories, the novellas are they work so well even today. Uh-huh. Like if you it, that's my recommendation. If you haven't actually read the actual like Sherlock Holmes books, short stories, novellas, all of that, like try those out. They aged great like amazingly, especially with like how he kind of predicted where forensic science was going. So I love talking about books. Ooh, books. It's going to be a good recording. <laughs> Don't get me started on Agatha Christie. I'm, a, yeah. I'm an absolute oh. Agatha Christie fan and her work is, so, she as a person is so interesting uh, if you read her her autobiography. But other than that, pick up an Agatha Christie. Don't be ashamed. Um, I love yeah. the, there's a re-release at the moment with very interesting covers, which I, which I love cover art. But the great thing about Agatha Christie, you can read them again. You can read them again and either you forgot who did it and then you're surprised again <laughs> or you remember and you watch her weaving the clues oh. in and you go, she was telling me to my face who, who, <laughs> who it was. And, um, yeah, I, I, I sort of can't uh, get enough of her uh, if we're talking about the older, the older style. Yeah, and to, we, to, add on one, oh, so to add on one older thing, um, uh, in Cold Blood, Truman Capote. Mm, yes. um, I know it's, he made up a whole genre, a never-before-known yeah, I mean, genre. If you are listening to this podcast and you haven't, I, I hadn't read that for ages because, oh, old books, well, who cares? Wow. Like even if think some things you, today you're like, whoa, that is not cool. But it's it's it started, it started the genre, started the genre. Mm-hmm. It's good to know your classics, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's look at the crimes that are under our magnifying glass today uh, and that are treated of in captive audience. And there are two crimes. Uh, one of them is uh, the following. So in December of 1972, seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was abducted in Merced, California, by convicted child molester Kenneth Parnell. Uh, Stephen was held in various locales in California for seven years until Parnell abducted five-year-old Timmy White. Um, The inference is that uh, Stephen was ageing out, which is a bit horrifying. In uh, March 1980, when Parnell was out and uh, Timmy had been abducted only for a few weeks at that moment, uh, Stephen scooped up Timmy and hitchhiked 38 miles, which is 61 kilometres, to a police station 
and he was reunited with his family. And there was a lot of media attention, both for his disappearance and for his return. He was hailed as a hero for rescuing Timmy and given a $15,000 reward. In 1989, a book and a two-part miniseries about him, both entitled I Know My First Name is Stephen, came out, and later that year, Stephen was killed in a motorcycle accident. Parnell spent five years of a seven-year sentence in prison for the kidnapping and sexual abuse of Stephen, and his accomplice served less than two years, and it's thought that his accomplice was, in fact, the boy before Stephen, uh, who had also by that time aged out. In 2004, Parnell was convicted of trying to buy a child and was sentenced to 25 years to life. So, you know, good on them for letting him out after five years. Uh, He died in prison in uh, 2008. And Timmy White became a sheriff's deputy and he died in 2010 at the age of 35 of a pulmonary embolism. And there's a statue of Stephen and Timmy in Ukiah. Wow. The second crime, Carrie Stainer, uh, Stephen's older brother, he murdered four women in or near Yosemite National Park between February and July of 1999. Their names were Carol Sond, Julie Sond, Sylvina Polesso, and Joey Armstrong. Uh, Julie was 15 and Sylvina was 16. Uh, He received a death sentence. And as of May 2022, last month, he's still on death row. Uh, there hasn't been a, an execution in California since 2006. And prior to Captive Audience, Kerry has been the subject of nine other media portrayals in various true crime TV series. Murray, why were you interested in covering this property in particular? Yeah, I mean, very heavy uh, uh, material and one that I was very familiar with. I guess what actually spurned us to cover it was we got a lot of suggestions for it um, when it came out. uh, What it came out, I think, in April-ish. So this case, these, these two cases are very interesting because I think one of the questions the documentary, at least what I was thinking that the documentary was trying to get to was if Stephen had not been taken, would Carrie have still became a murderer? And I I wonder if that question was asked. I wonder if we have an answer to it. Um, But before we get to that, I just, I really think that, I've watched a lot about both because he's called the Yosemite National Park Killer. Like Carrie Stainer has a whole name and it was a very big thing. And I don't know when it was that I connected the two cases, except for that. I distinctly remember in my AP psychology class in high school, my my teacher was a nutcase. She was a nutcase. But I, I did love psychology. So give or take. And she brought up the Stephen Stainer case as a um, example of Stockholm syndrome. And I just remember listening to the case. Yes. Yeah. I was like looking at her a little sideways because uh, that lady was a little crazy. Um, and I remember her, her telling us this story and, and you know, um, having us look up more about it. And I just thought that I think calling it Stockholm syndrome, even at, at that time, didn't feel 
Right. And I think that this, if there's one thing I can give this docuseries is I think it, they did a pretty good job of um, giving me a little bit more of Steven's story in a way that I felt I loved how the family participated. I, I, I felt like the, the daughter opens up the documentary saying she wanted it to come like from the family's point of view. And I, and I think if there is one successful thing about this docuseries, I, I, that might be it. Lisa, what, what do you think? I think I'm against the majority of people that I thought it was a, a really amazing, well done uh, with, with, with the odd mistake piece of uh, like I really I'm a sucker for meta things so it already had me with its focus on how the story is told the Mm -hmm. sort of the the mirroring of the person writing the miniseries and the crime Mm -hmm. uh, and the people retelling the story and just constantly putting people who's in the audience now you know who's who's shaping that story I just found it so clever and the focus on trauma and abuse and how that informs the story, people's actions, everything. It was just like at the core of this. And I sort of, I, yeah, really enjoyed it. Enjoys the wrong word. I thought, I, I thought it was really good, but I know that a lot of people do not think that. Really? I don't know if I've heard that. Oh. Uh, yes, I, I've, I've heard mixed reactions. And I have to say, you really? know, with our, pa- with our patented two-watch system, where <laughs> you watch it twice, um, I, I liked it. Uh, I liked it better on the second watch, but I also had more questions about how it was made. So I, I mean, just to, to, you know, spoil my, my magnifying glasses, I mean, I would recommend this uh, property, but I'm also going to be critical of some, some of the details. So let's just jump straight into our talking heads. Stephen and Carrie's mother Kay is here and she has had enough of your shit. She <laughs> is not taking a single thing from you. She is giving it all. What, what did we think of Kay, Lisa? So it's so difficult to talk about real people who have done real things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, struggle, I struggle with this on Survivor podcast too mm-hmm. because you only see, and especially in this documentary, they, you know, they, they're really clear to say, you know, this is a story and this is how we've constructed the story. Yes. Um, I really liked how Kay talked about how she, what she would have done differently and how she constructed her story. Like she says at the end, well, if you don't get a story out of something, you know, you haven't really, basically she says, if you don't get a story out of something, you haven't really integrated it, mm-hmm. which I thought was like, yes, that is true. I, I can't imagine what it's like to have those two children with such different outcomes, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> even, even when Stephen was abducted and being the parent to the remaining children, how mm. do you even hold both those roles? Like I was just, yeah. Yeah, and I think that brings up an excellent point. I thought Kay was really good here, especially in the Stephen portion of the docuseries. The docuseries is broken up into three parts. The first part is Stephen's story, part one. The second part is Stephen's story, part two. And then the third uh, part is Carrie's story. And I think um, Kay did not participate in Carrie's part. She basically was like, no, I'm not touching that. But I thought that she did a really good job of giving us a window to what was going on during Stephen's um, abduction. 
And it, as a parent, it really did make me she she made me connect to her in a way of, like you said, how do you keep going when something so devastating has happened, especially when we kind of learned that her husband, Dell, was like falling apart at the seams, not meaning to like laugh at him, but like that is crazy. Like, how do you how do you mentally wrap your your mind around having to, you know, kind of prop your partner up and then you have four other kids, you know, um, but I thought Kay did an amazing job of really um, um, putting us there. And I think the rest of the talking heads did a great job too. Let me just finish this up here from, from my point of view. I would have loved to hear more from some of the other siblings. The only other sibling that we got was Corey St- Corey Stainer? Yes. Corey, mm-hmm. yeah. And she was amazing too. Unfortunately, she was very young when Stephen went um, She's the youngest she, of the yeah. Right. She was four when Stephen went missing. So as she's retelling some of the stuff, she, you know, she, she can't really place us where I kind of wanted to be placed. Like we can't, mm-hmm. we clearly can't talk to Carrie about it. So I really would have loved for the older sister to be present here, but I, I, I'm wondering if there was, um, you know, this, this is not easy to talk about, <laughs> you know, this is not nothing easy to talk about. So I respect anybody like stepping out, but um, I think Jody, J- Jody did provide um, a good background for a lot of the carry discussion and a lot of like the aftermath of Stephen coming coming back, um, and of course, uh, just heartbreaking. Jodie mm-hmm. was Stephen's wife. Corey is the, oh sorry, Corey. difficult because Corey is Carrie and Stephen's sister. Yeah, the younger, the youngest. Yes, and the oldest sister is named the oldest oldest sister that we never see is named like something like that, like Jodie or Julie or something like yes. that. It yes. starts with a J. So that was my fault. Yes. Corey, the sister Corey, and starting off this documentary with Ashley Stainer and Stephen Jr., Steve, uh, Stephen Stainer's kids, I thought was really powerful because they just talk about how they didn't know their their um, father and how they want this documentary to be a way to connect with him. So I thought the the whole family did a really good job just welcoming us into this unfortunate point in their life, and I think. What I did get away from this with their participation is, like you guys said about Kay, they want the story to be told um, in a way that does not sense a lot since, you know what I'm talking about. Um, they want the story to be told and I think they want it to be told in a way that can like help other people. And and she says it about the original miniseries. She says it about Stephen himself wanting to get that story across. So I, I think this, this I, I hope she said she doesn't, Kay says she doesn't believe in closure, but I hope it, maybe this could have brought a little bit of closure for her. Well, I mean, let's, let's talk a little about <laughs> the the structure of the the piece. So they use um, uh, found footage. They use uh, audio tapes of the yes. writer of the miniseries talking to the producer about how he's going to do it. They use uh, c- uh, contemporaneous news footage. They use clips from the miniseries. They they they've really done their their ar- whoever the archival researchers <laughs> were gold star. I, I mean, I have. I think maybe they showed too much of their homework, but some of it was so fascinating. I don't know what you would uh, cut, but I do want to talk about. They have 
audio tapes of the original miniseries writer talking to Stephen and mm-hmm. Carrie. This is after Stephen's return uh, and before his death and then what's going to happen to, to Carrie in the future. And they have Corin Nemec, who's an actor who played Stephen in the miniseries, and Todd Andrews, uh, an actor who played Carrie in the miniseries. And they have them read transcripts of these audio tapes. The director does say, oh, you know, you don't have to act it. They both act the pants off themselves. Mm -hmm. What did we think of this device, uh, Lisa? I thought this is a great idea. Like it sounds like, oh, what a cool idea. But then as soon as it starts, I'm like, oh, no. What, why? why are we doing this? this yes. is, what is yeah. this doing in this like otherwise pretty solid thing yeah. that's got its head screwed on? Yeah, like um, so I, I liked, I, I, did, I liked having them involved. I love the variety of voices in this doc- documentary because they it helps you to see sort of put yourself in the position a little bit more. Like the more variety of voices you have, the more different perspectives, the more questions you get answered. People, especially people who are on the periphery. So, like in this, you have the family, then you have the um, like the school friends and the teachers and things like that who are just like a little bit removed, and then you have like Corin and Todd who um, are incredibly removed, but it's still sort of they still they still got a little connection, and it's sort of like that going outward circle of, and then we're we're sort of in the same space as some of those people in terms of our sort of view of it or our connection to it, mm-hmm. and. So I loved hearing the, the Todd's perspective, especially. He was very effusive. He was put on, especially in the part three, he sort of filled that audience role really well. But, yeah, it, it's not authentic. It's not, I don't, I didn't. Mm-mm. Yeah. So there's a couple of things going on. We we do hear a little of the audio tapes. They are very degraded. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thank you for, for letting me hear a little bit of the original people's voices talking to the writer, but I don't know that I could have, you know, listened to vast swathes, swathes of it. Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't have minded them introducing these two actors and saying they will be recreating the audio that would also have been fine, but I think it was a step too far to have them opining, looking at the script uh, and being very actorish. It seemed like a a jarring note to me. And, mm. I mean, they're great. I mean, I recognised Todd Andrews from various things um, and Corin Nemec definitely met Stephen. I don't know whether Todd met Kerry, but, I mean, that is a connection, although he doesn't speak about that at all. Uh, Stephen was in the miniseries as uh, one of the policemen that brings uh, brings the actor Stephen home. But I just felt like what, I don't want to actually hear from you because you're not adding anything. Murray, what did you think about this uh, section? So this is very interesting because when I watched it with James, he 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 thought the same thing. He was very like, "Ooh, no, I don't like this." <laughs> like it, 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 and I was like, "What? I don't understand." Like it's it's one of those feelings where it's just kind of like there's nothing ethnically, morally wrong with it, but some people just feel very sensitive to what was happening. For me, as somebody who really liked hearing from the director because throughout like like Sarah said throughout the first two parts we hear the writer of the original 
mini series going through his notes, talking with he's and most of it. He's talking to the producer about the show, but we're we're hearing his thought process as he makes this TV movie. And I really love that aspect. And it sucks because we didn't get to hear his words with him and, and um, Steven and then him and Carrie because the, the, the audio was just very, very bad. So I thought it was a, an effective way to hear what was happening. And I didn't, I honestly didn't mind it. I actually thought they did a really good job. I think most of the time what I did, maybe this helped me, is I looked away when they were doing it so I could really hear the words. And I thought that they were over, <laughs> there was a little bit of overacting, but I actually liked the way it sounded coming from Todd when he was, when he wanted to know, okay, this is Carrie, how old is he? <laughs> That's a little weird, you know, but I, I actually like the listen. I like listening to it. So maybe if I hadn't have gotten the visual of them, like getting into character and maybe if they had have left off some of those, you know, left off some of those pieces of like seeing the actor before and then into the character, maybe that would have made it a little bit better. Does that make sense? Like if this was, a, mm. if they just did a full on reenactment, re-enactment and yeah. we hate reenactments here. So, you know, if I'm <laughs> suggesting a reenactment, maybe if they had just done a full on reenactment, it would have felt better as opposed to like kind of watching them go from, okay, I'm Cornemic and Scene and <laughs> type of deal. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it makes absolute yeah. sense. I mean, that that would be uh, you know introduce them as the actors who played these brothers, but then use them just for uh, voicing voicing the thing. That that for me was the major misstep. But as you say, Murray, mm-hmm. we get the bit where they sit down. We get the bit where they're handed the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. We get the bit where they ask, "Oh, which bit am I reading from?" And we hear the director's voice you know, directing them as to what they're to do. Mm-hmm. And this is a bit of uh, a texture that goes all the way through. We have mm-hmm. a contemporaneous news anchor or you know, news reporter footage with the outtakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why are you showing me uh, the man saying case instead of cases and having to stop and stumbling over his words? Why are you showing me that? And really on second viewing, uh, I mean, I knew what she was trying to do on first viewing, and I thought, mm, no. And then on second viewing, I found that extraneous fringes of the uh, process, meta stuff, as Lisa says, I found it much mm-hmm. more effective on the second viewing. Um, Lisa, what was your feeling about using, like, all these, or the, you know, uh, putting photos on a grey carpet, opening boxes, looking, <sighs> looking at the actual physical tape? Yeah, the grey carpet, like I have I have a whole note about that. Oh, okay. go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the way that they put on the grey carpet, like first of all, it, that is beautifully lit. It looks like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we're just sticking these on some random carpet, but they are not. Like it's beautifully mm-hmm. lit. And also I, I tried to work out if it was Ashley, Ashley or Stephen putting the things mm-hmm. down and looking at the jewellery and things, it isn't. So mm-hmm. this was either filmed like at a different time or, you know, so it, it is a stage on purpose. and. I think having things on the rug like that, it makes it really relatable. Um, mm-hmm. But it also emphasizes that it's like a story telling part of it. It took me right back to when you've, you're getting out your old family photos or something and you have people around and you're just taking them like, oh, okay, this is when we, when we went to this place and you just put the photo out. Or, oh, here's this. It's, I did the same to a friend the other day who didn't know I'd been on Survivor. 
And one of my other friends was like, yeah, yeah, Lisa's on Survivor. Um, you know, get, get out your stuff. And so I got out like the magazines and things. And I was like, exactly, exactly this. We're sitting on the floor of my lounge, my like, you know, not perfect rug. I'm getting out the things bit by bit, putting them down. Yeah, I just, oh, I love that. I love that so much. I, I thought it just tied in so well to the like, here is the story and we are giving it to you and we're giving you the story of the way the story's been told a hundred other times and the family's giving us the story that then we're giving to you. And, oh, I just, I thought it was really cool. That rug, I could just, I pine on it for a long time. <laughs> um, and the, 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 yeah, yeah. And I, I agree. I loved, I love that. Like the, just the feel of it. Like I felt like I could feel the rug. Like it was really Ooh. well done. And I like what I, I want to kind of, I don't know if this is a step back, but the way that uh, Jessica Dimmick pieced together the old footage with her footage, with the, the audio, with the current confessionals, it was perfection. And I just want to give her that, that those kudos because it was the exact opposite of what Keeper of the Ashes did. Because mm-hmm. Keeper of the Ashes pissed me off with the way that they just, it felt like they just smattered and, and glued and, and just put in old random clip here and old random clip there. It's all nonsense, nonsensically. Like Jessica Dimmock did it so well that like, I don't know. I don't even know how she did it, but I knew that, okay, I'm, I'm watching this old footage. I'm, I'm in it. We're going back to like the, the confessionals of the family today. And it all flowed so well, almost like, almost like a scrapbook. Like this was a visual mm. scrapbook. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, oh, really and, well said. Yeah. 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 And I think maybe that's what she was going for, because if you look at yeah. the logo of the of the show, that's what it, the vibes were. And I think like at least like production wise and all of that, like you cannot like it was so good. I, I can't I can't give her any like bad critiques on that. And it was weird, like the some of the, the outtakes and stuff like that. But the that one outtake didn't make sense. But the rest of it, I thought was really, yeah. really kind oh, of cool. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The, yeah, behind the scenes stuff, like the people, like, oh, can I get up? Am I ready? Like, I I need to go. I like it was very interesting, and I and I think I agree with you, Sarah. It's like you know that she's trying to tell you, like, we're I'm telling a story. Like I, I'm, it's like. I don't know how she was simultaneously telling us that she was telling a story while also trying to bring us closer to it, like make us empathize with it more. Like it was really interesting, the balance that she got. Yeah, I, I think part part of the balance is that, you know, intriguing though these stories are, it there's not a lot to them. I mean, this happened, that happened, then that happened. It's mm-hmm. not like some of the things we've we've covered where we've had to take extensive notes and go carefully unpicking the story and try to understand how it all fits together. So she has three 45-minute episodes, mm-hmm. and I think that's where she draws us in is the mm-hmm. amount of time you just sit with her. The facts of the case are straightforward, horrifying, but straightforward. Mm-hmm. And we, we step through the facts, but she is trying and I think to a great part succeeding in weaving together the scrapbook. As you say, it's the perfect, it's the perfect mm. um, description. 
the, the, the whole thing starts with Stephen's children, Ashley and Stephen Jr., opening the dad box that's got Stephen written on the side. And inside mm-hmm. that are the newspapers and the photographs, which we are going to see laid onto this carpet uh, throughout. And it's, it's Ashley saying, I want this story to be told. And if we remember her, it sort of carries through in that way. So I think the time that she took, again, that was a question I had was, is there enough for three 45-minute episodes? How else would you structure it? But I think the structure was good. The disappearance in, in part one, the return and the media attention and his death in part two, and then the Kerry stuff in part three. I do want to go to the period of time where Stephen was Dennis. If you haven't seen the documentary, mm-hmm. uh, when um, Parnell took him, he said his name was now Dennis. He sent him to school. I mean, this is the arrogance of the captor, knowing mm-hmm. knowing that this child would not say anything. And so there's a group of people lit differently in a different setting on a different chair. They all sit in the same chair. That was, mm-hmm. I thought, very well done visually so that we knew where we were. We mm-hmm. were where he spent his, his early teen years yeah. at school. Com- so com- com- Compton, that's the name of the small town. Yeah, well, you you do small towns if you've abducted abducted a child, apparently. Um, So what did we think, Mari, of these, his school friends and a couple of his teachers? I was very moved by the teacher that was overcome suddenly with emotion that she had not picked anything up or helped him. Yeah, it it was very um, sobering in a sense because they brought with them the sense of what happened to him in those seven years, which, you know, the family could not. And apparently when Stephen come back, came back, he he could not, you know, you know, we'll get to it in part two. But even he couldn't really voice, put voice to what happened to him in those seven years. So having the school friends there and giving us that that time that they had with them because it wasn't the full seven years it was just the last it was about the last year or so um few years that he was with parnell um in Comchi. uh parnell at this point it had just had just brainwashed him to to the sense of just like he abducted him he told him like your parents don't want you anymore. I went to court, you know, I now own you. And then for a seven-year-old to be taught that for so many years to the point where he's, he's now in Compte, I think he, he was around, he, he was there when he was around 13, 14, 15-ish. And he has so much leeway now because Parnell lets him go out with his friends. There's so many of them. They talk about how they just all just have the lay of the land. And they, it was like very rural. Like they'd go out, they drink some beers. They just hang out for long periods of time. Their, their families didn't worry about them. They'd come back. But everybody always seemed to know, like, don't go to Stephen's house. Stephen's dad is weird. Like Stephen didn't have a lot of shoes. He didn't have a lot of, um, of, uh, clothes his fingernails were always dirty and and then it's kind of like it's it's stories like this being told which now informs us of modern day how how uh, teachers look for signs of abuse now so it's like from my modern day lens i have to be like no don't be mad at these people for not seeing this because that was a 
totally different time. The 70s were a totally different time where a seven-year-old could walk from, from school to home and, you know, them getting kidnapped to people was unfathomable. We live in this time where we know it's fathomable <laughs> and that's why we're scared now, you know? Uh, but back then it wasn't that that type of time. So it, it's another reason why sharing this story is so impactful because, again, it's one of those reasons why we cling to true crime. It's like, if we know that it happened before, we can prevent it from happening in the future. And um, the, the school friends were just, it was it was really good hearing from them. I thought they, they showed immense love towards Stephen or Dennis, you know, even them asking the director, like, should I call him Stephen or should I call him Dennis? And the director being like, well, call him Dennis because that's how you knew him. Um, but they really seemed that they were like completely blown away when everything that was revealed was revealed. And I thought it was incredibly effective. I, yeah, like like I said earlier, those sort of increasing circles of people at further distances Mm -hmm. from it. And I thought the friends were definitely sort of almost like avatars for us in a way. Mm -hmm. And they were, this title captive audience, I kept on going back to it after I watched Mm -hmm. it. Because mm-hmm. when I first went into it, I was like, oh, okay, captive, blah, blah. okay, so mm-hmm. this is going to be, you know, Stephen's the captive, obviously. But I think it's more about, um, like, in a way, these these friends, they were like unwitting participants in this story. Mm-hmm. Know, that for them, they're just living their life in their small town, hanging out with a friend, and then it turns out, oh, well, for, you know, for a year, we were alongside this, this person who was kidnapped, and we didn't do anything and didn't know anything about it. And all our social interactions were on this level that we didn't know about. You know, they're really sort of unwitting. And same way, sort of everyone in the story, there's like this theme of getting affected by things that are outside of your control. Mm-hmm. And then in part three, it's like they, that, that's when you, they raise the question like, well, you know, what, what happened with Carrie? Why mm-hmm. has this happened? You know, he's affected the lives of all these women, ended the lives of these women and affected others that we think he attacked. But yeah, who's who's the captive audience, and who are the the sort of movement makers in these stories? And sorry, that's a, that's a big that's a waffle, but it's something I wanted to bring up. I uh, you know I would like to talk about the the subtitle as well. But before we plunge into that, should we just go to part three and talk about Carrie's story? If I say this is the thinnest part i don't mean mm-hmm. that as a as a knock it's it, it's just stated very boldly these women were killed they don't go terribly much into the manner of their death which i must say i was grateful for because it's yeah. not the point we get more of todd andrews reading earlier interviews of of Kerry with the writer not as illuminating as they think it is, I don't think, because this is years before yeah. he he made these actions. What did we think of part three, Lisa? I thought this was where it sort of made the switch to a true crime documentary. Yes. Uh-huh. Like, I think if, yep. you, if you were watching this thinking it's a true crime documentary, the first two parts, you're like, oh, this is, and then the last one, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, this, this happened. One thing that happened right at the start that I think I, I'd call this another misstep is Todd Andrew says that Stephen Stephen had his experience and he got his movie. Stephen had his story and then he got his movie and then Carrie had his story and you know so Carrie got his story by murdering these women. But I don't, I don't like that. It's that story is not Carrie's story. It's the victim's yeah. story. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, both times I watched that, I was just like, oh, this is, I don't enjoy it. This is where true crime can really fall down for me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I liked so much about the first two sections. Kenneth Parnell was mostly absent from those first two sections. In the yeah. credit, I love how the show uses the credits. And in the credits, he's even presented as like a just an outline to be filled in. He's like an absence in the credits even. Mm. And then, but then for the third part, I don't know, for Todd to say, well, this is Carrie's story and this is Carrie's chance to shine. And like, I know the, the director is trying to say that that's what Carrie wanted and that's what motivated him. Maybe that's what they're trying to say to do right. his crimes, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, it, it was like just very so tonally different from the first two parts, and I guess my heart was with the first two parts a lot more. Corey says that Carrie was wrong, you know, even when he was younger. What did what did you yes. think about that? So for me, the funny thing is when I rewatched it the second time, what I did was I watched Carrie's part first, and then went back and watched part one and part two again, and that was a really interesting way to to watch it as well because it made me really notice how absent Carrie is from the first two parts like they truly like they you my mind made me think that they referred to him like so many times like oh look at him in the back you know but truly in part one and part two Carrie's only mentioned a little bit in part two you know what I'm saying they do a really good job of and that's what I, I I like because I feel like just like Ashley said I don't think these cases should be intertwined like this is this is me my perception from all of the media that I've that I've consumed about both of these cases I think is very unfair to intertwine both of these stories mm-hmm. because I think they are abjectly separate to be quite honest because I do believe what Kerry said when he said that he was suffering from these urges since he was young and like you said um Corey the sister saying how everybody knew he wasn't right you know what I'm saying like and I'm not so sure that if nothing happened to Stephen would he not have been a murderer I I, I think this might have been inevitable you know, maybe, you know, I don't know. So I, I I don't think Stephen going missing caused Carrie to murder. I, that you cannot convince me of. Does that make sense? Like I know for a fact that that's not, it wasn't that, but I could not tell you if Stephen had never went missing, would he have still been a murderer? You know, cause I don't yeah. want, it feels like you're blaming Stephen's abduction for him murdering these women when I don't think that's the case. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just making sure I'm being like coming off right. So, and in Carrie's part, it is it is by the books. It's it's basically a dateline, really, truly. Like it it is your your true crime portion, and it, if that's what you if that's what you like, you will like that that part three. And I'm I'm glad it was very streamlined. I'm glad um, it it is horrible that we don't get too much about about the victims. I think one of the things that they should have really went into more about the victim um, Joy Armstrong was because she fought so valiantly because she basically made it impossible for him to murder her in a way that he could have cleaned up his tracks he was caught he was um and i'm not doing recommendations but um i re-listened to a few podcasts about the yosemite killer and um one of my favorites of course shout out to the murderinos of the my favorite murder um fans um my favorite murder covered the yosemite killer and they they talked about how the cops and a lot of the 
the journalists gave credit to Joy Armstrong because if she hadn't have fought him as vigorously as she did, if she hadn't escaped him, she escaped him. And if he unfortunately still overpowered her, but because of the struggle, there was so much evidence left behind to tie him to her murder, including what the one thing that they t- they showed in this um, docuseries was his car being spotted in the area. But because of her resilience, he was stopped and effectively she saved lives because he would have kept going. He said it in his interview that he would have kept going until he either killed himself or he was caught. So I feel like they could have um, definitely included that a little bit more. But other than that, I think it was just them uh, talking about his, his Kate, like getting kind of like getting the crimes out of the way so that they can then speculate about the linkage between the two actions between Stephen going missing and then Carrie committing these, these crimes. Yeah. I mean, Stephen going missing and, and the crimes happened to the same family, but we Mm -hmm. hear, we hear about him, you know, as a child, uh, Corey talks about her feelings about him. But also, I do, you don't go from zero to killing three people at once. So, yes, he killed right. four women, but he killed three of them at the same time, and that was his mm-hmm. first crime as far as as far as far is known. This mm-hmm. is a pretty well-developed killer that you can do that and overpower. I mean, they don't go into it. The idea that, oh, my younger brother is getting attention, I want attention, I don't know if that leads uh, directly to being a killer, Lisa. What do you think? Uh, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think something about uh, Carrie Stainer, which I thought was really interesting, that they, they t- uh, the mitigation expert touched on this a little bit. That there was abuse in the family. There was alcoholism in the family. There was things like this. And, Carrie Stainer alleges that he was, you know, abused, sexually abused by his uncle, who he mm-hmm. lived with right up until before, who, you know, was subsequently killed by someone. Yeah, by someone. Yes, exactly. Someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, just, it's like the cycle know. is like, is people that. People hurt people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There's yeah. a there's a photograph of the extended family, a very joyful, uh, coloured photograph of many many people, uh, tiny people, big people, uh, all with their their marvellous hair, sort of looking mm. off to the side, and the director returns to it again and again without comment, and mm. I think she's very much leading us to that thought of what is happening within the family, within the extended family, what is the cycle, what is the intergenerational trauma that's happening uh, here, I think. It's very interesting that uh, Ashley and Stephen Jr. are not part of the family very much. They say their mother, Jodie, remarried and their stepfather kept them away from the family. And you think, well, that's (laughs) either a new cycle of abuse, of kind of isolation Mm -hmm. from the family, or it's a person saying, these people are not good for you and and keeping them away. It seems cruel, but, you know, what's going on there, we don't, we can only speculate. I think yeah. Ashley does say that um, Jody he, married a not very nice man. Yeah, mm-hmm. she, she said he was really, he was a bad stepfather. And, well, they certainly uh, had a violent reaction to taking his name. They wanted to keep their own name. 
Right. Which should tell you a lot right there, to be quite honest. <laughs> it, it Again, it just does feel like a cycle in some way, because even in part three, once, you know, they it's revealed that uh, Carrie, their uncle, is the murderer. And then they have to kind of be like, well, we don't really know him um, and explain that away while also not knowing their father. I think that's the most tragic thing of of all of this was unfortunately Stephen was taken away in a, in a freak hit and run accident. Like, well, freak as in like it happened to him, you know, if somebody was very, you know, hor- horrible and hit him and ran, but I mean, like how much suffering can one mm-hmm. person just like how much bad luck can come to, to somebody. And that's, what's really, really sucks about it because he did not, his children, now didn't get to experience him and he didn't get to it feels like he didn't get to live out his his happily ever after you know it felt like he was just maybe getting to a point where he was good with everything and then that happens and then the kids not knowing him like they had to they talked about how they watched the tv movie multiple times because that was the only way they could know anything about their father because their mom didn't talk about them. The stepfather didn't want them talking about it. And that's just, that's just the most unfortunate part. It's just the saddest thing about all of this, all of these crimes. It's just all connected and hurt people, hurt people like Lisa said. And I just hope again, if this couldn't bring closure to Kay, hopefully maybe this helps Steven Jr. And Ashley, I feel like Ashley was great. Ashley was really she, good. Yeah, she was mm-hmm. very clear-eyed. I think she's done a lot of work. I mean, I'm making a huge assumption here. Mm-hmm. She has a very sweet thing where she says anytime she sees Corin Nemec, she goes, oh, dad, because Corin Nemec played her father in the movie. And that was that was quite a sweet note, I think, that she felt that connection. What do we think of this subtitle, A Real American Horror Story? <laughs> I mean, I thought, I think it's pretty, um, it's interesting. I, I always forget there is a, a sub, uh, subtitle here. And I mean, it, how apt, honestly, how, how apt. Yeah. I, I, for me, I wonder if it was needed. Uh, one of the actors, Todd Andrews, actually was in American Horror Story. So I thought, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit clever, clever. But then maybe it's part of that whole sort of meta. Uh, world uh, for me so so I'm gonna ask the big question final thoughts uh, did the director achieve what she set out to in your opinion Lisa she did for me I thought it was such a successful like touching upon you know trauma and how it resonates through a community a family um, abuse and how that can just again, just like these ripples, like the thing I really liked about this was how they showed the ripples going from the big events or the big things, the things that everyone would recognize as traumatic. Oh, wow, you got abducted as a child? Oh, yes, gosh, that's a big trauma, you know. Mm-hmm. And then as the ripples go through, all the people affected and how it played through in the people's lives. I think this is a, this is a property that really benefits from you bringing your own knowledge and experiences of abuse and trauma and psychology and things like that. So if, if you're watching this and you, you're sort of thinking, oh, this isn't really a true crime documentary, then I would say find out a little bit more about some of these issues, you know, attachment issues, things like that. And then it will help to inform you to really 
I think, get what this director is trying to say without being too heavy-handed. Yeah, good job. Yeah. Yeah. Amari, any final thoughts from you? Um, No, I think it was a very effective docuseries. I think Jessica Demock did a great job. And I think maybe she wasn't looking for answers, but I thought, I think she brought up a lot of good questions and a good perspective. Yeah, I, I like that's That's a very, very insightful. I, I like that there were questions and things that we were supposed to just think about and experience mm-hmm. rather than her mm-hmm. handing us the answer. So let's get to our ratings. Uh, from one to five magnifying glasses, uh, Lisa, how many magnifying glasses are you going to give captive audience? I'm going to give it four. I really enjoyed it. thought it was very successful, um, but I can understand that you know, there were the actors coming through it were like a bit of a misstep for me. And it's not going to be for everyone. You know, really, like we were talking right at the start, you know, Agatha Christie, uh, really good art transcends the medium. And I'm not sure if this is going to reach every single person in the way the director was intending. Hmm. Mari, what about you? I agree. I'm right there with four magnifying glasses, actually. I think this is one of the better uh, properties that we've reviewed. and. I think it's very uh, rewatchable. It's great on the first watch, the second watch. I think I think I love the style. I already talked about how I love the style of it all. So, yeah, a four. I would. I'm I'm still holding out for the the good five, but I think this is definitely good, and I de- definitely recommend people to watch it. Great. I'm with you. I'm going to give it a three and a half. I think this is. I thoroughly recommend people to watch it. So you may wonder why it's three and a half. For me, there were just a, a couple of missteps. I find the the use of the actors. I felt they could have been used more effectively. The font of the um, where they put up the subtitles of the writer speaking to the producer. The font was a very poor choice so and I was surprised because visually like leaving aside content and everything else visually this is an extremely assured documentary Uh, so there were just a few things that for me were not kept it from perfection and one of them is that she's found so much wonderful archival stuff sometimes there were a few too many curlicules in there however I think three and a half is a good property so I'm giving it Three and a half. So as we hinted at earlier, our entire recommendation section has been renamed Lisa's List. Lisa, what do you have for us? Oh, I have so many. I'm going to try and like get through them in, in quick order. So I was a librarian for about 20 years. So um, obviously books are my jam, but um, a big part of being a librarian is recommending things. So thinking things that have common themes that someone might not think to go to. So. I've got a list here of things that I think uh, if you enjoyed this or if you like some of the themes in this, things you will enjoy. The first thing is I've got a couple of watchalikes. So if you enjoyed watching this, if you enjoyed watching, I know my first name is Stephen. Um, there's a series on Netflix called The Frog Boys. It's so just a similar thing, very short mini series about some boys who were missing in Korea. Um, it's just like a very affecting story, uh, more, more twists and turns than this. Yeah, so if you enjoyed this, you probably enjoy The Frog Boys. Uh, also, a fiction movie, The Changeling, that Angelina Jolie, um, based on a true story with a child who got abducted and reunited with his family. So yeah, that's a fiction one. That's a bit of a bit of a reach, but yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, if you like listening to podcasts about 
true crime. There is one that I've listened to uh, in the last year, which I think is amazing. Uh, it's called Harsh Reality, the story of Miriam Rivera, which is about an early 2000s reality TV show called There's Something About Miriam. Uh, I don't really want to say much about it because, it's, yeah, I, I always think things are better if you go into it not knowing much. But look it up, and if you think you might enjoy it, listen to it. And if you don't think you will enjoy it, probably listen to it even more. great advice (laughs) such a valuable it's like a valuable story it's a horrifying story it's a deep story it's like gives voice to so many things that don't get enough voice so harsh reality true story of Miriam Rivera Um, also on a very much lighter note The Onion did a uh, parody true crime podcast called A Very Fatal Murder and this thing we just watched is all about telling the story and how things get put across and true crime as a genre it can get quite tropified and a very fatal murder is a nice listen it's funny but also it might make you a bit more aware of some of these tropes and ways that people almost like try and manipulate what you think about in the as they're telling the story um on that note one thing I really enjoy doing and I advise anyone to do if you like any in, in any field really but in true crime, people have very strong ideas about cases and they really, it's not so much about conveying the truth of what happened, it's about twisting the facts to make their favorite theory come to the fore. And it's very easy to read a true crime book, watch a movie, come off it thinking, oh, this true crime is solved, I know what happened here because of the way the director or the writer has like crafted everything. So if you have, a, a true, like you know, I said right at the start, Jack the Ripper is one that I've read a lot about in the past because it was something that really captured my attention. And there's no shortage of theories about that. So I think it's always, a, it's a great exercise. If you've got a Jack, I read Patricia Cornwall, Jack the Ripper case closed in the 90s. And I was, I read that. I was like, well, she's closed the case. This is amazing. This is fantastic. You know, and then you read some rebuttals of it and you're like, oh, oh, oops, not at all. And then you read someone else's book about Jack the Ripper and you're like, ah, oh, Jack the Ripper was really this doctor. Fantastic. Case closed. And then you read that what that person left out. And then you read the book that says, no, that's so stupid. It wasn't the doctor. It was the doctor's wife. And that one even I didn't, wasn't like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. But just becoming a more critical reader, I think, informs, it informs a lot of things in your life. Not, not only your enjoyment <laughs> of true crime, but being a, you know, a good, good human being. So, yeah, if you've got a true crime property that you really like, Read a variety and read two things that contradict each other almost. You read two Jack the Ripper books and say, like, gosh, these both can't be true. You know, why, what is this person choosing? What are they leaving out? And that's one thing I really like about the Crime Scene podcast is your focus on what have they put in? What have they left out? What story are they trying to tell? Why have they done that? So that critical thinking I think is really good. Okay, I've already just got on for so long, but I'm going <laughs> to go on even longer. My favorite true crime books my favorite true crime properties there's a I've, I've narrowed it down my favorite book one of my favorite books of all time is the devil in the white city by eric larson it's a it's like it's called a faction book almost so it's like a factual story told like a novel he's written another book as well called lethal passage both of these fit into the true crime genre devil in the white city is the story of hh H. holmes who was a serial killer who was 
active at the same time as the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. That's what the white city in the there is. So it tells these two stories um, intertwined, and it's it's amazing and beautiful, and oh, it's a really good writing. Lethal Passage is by Eric Larson as well, and it's the story of a handgun that was involved in a crime, and it tracks the history of that handgun and how it got how from its manufacturer and all the people it passed through until it was used um, in this crime. Uh, that one's a little bit harder to find, but definitely worth hunting out. The other true, uh, if I had to choose like a really good true crime property, um, American Crime Story, O.J. Simpson. It's a masterclass in how to do it, I think. Uh, nothing's without problems, but if you haven't watched that, watch it. Ryan Murphy, that whole American horror story glee thing, it can be quite a lot. So I understand if you haven't watched it, but American Crime Story is just, it's, it's reined in. It's just perfect. And the last bit about writing I'll say is if you like true crime and you haven't read what Dominic June, Dominic Dunn, Dominic Dunn. June, Dunn, Dunn, yeah. See, I know, I'm a reader. I know how to read things, not to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, his, his, he, during the time of the O.J. Simpson trial, covered it for Vanity Fair. And some that writing around that time, his writing about true crime at that time is really good this isn't a it's not a very abusive review but it is really good and if you haven't read it you know look it up online and just yes his daughter was murdered by um a privileged mm. a family of privilege uh and mm. he it, it completely changed his writing life and he writes about crimes uh, within mm. the rich and powerful and and how they're propped up by institutions and how society allows it and what the attitudes are. He also looks at how it's viewed in the media. Yes, uh, Dominic Dunn is a fantastic read uh, and, and very much worth uh, looking up his work. I think especially because, like Sarah said, he didn't come, he wasn't interested in true crime. He wasn't, but it touched his family. And so he went from writing about uh, he went from like screenwriting and mm-hmm. writing, sort of being really involved in the show business world to going to courtrooms. And so he also has that really good perspective of being like an outsider. It, it really helps to put you in the same place. He asks the questions and says the things that you might think, even though he, he himself is like a very privileged white American, probably New Yorker, I think. It's, yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. And I, I read these things in real time because I'm quite old. So maybe if you go back and read them now, it might not be the same, but it was it's definitely true crime seminal for me. The last thing I want to say is for me, especially the first two parts of this were very much about abuse and trauma. A child who went through a horrifying experience, a family who went through that experience, why did people react the way they did, how they dealt with it afterwards, how they processed it or didn't process it. And those topics are something that's really like, close to me, really dear to me. And so I just wanted to share a couple of things that had really helped me. So if you've been listening to this and you're seeing, you know, yourself in any of this or any situations you've experienced, then I first of all recommend one to recommend a website. Uh, It's called healthyplace.com. So healthy place, you can understand my New Zealand accent. And it's just got a lot of articles about different types of abuse. And if you, you know, if you're thinking to yourself, man, you know, why am I feeling like this? Or 
this happened to me and I just don't know what to do. It's a good place to start. It has little short articles, approachable articles about a lot of different issues and you'll see like you're not alone and there is a way through, even through these quite horrible situations. And last thing is a book that really helped me. I'm backtracking. Second to last thing. If you haven't listened to Grace, Ariel and Marissa talk about Russian Doll Season 2, or if you haven't watched Russian Doll Season 2, this seems like such a sidestep to suddenly be talking about this time travel show. But the themes of epigenetics, intergenerational trauma, abuse, wanting to change things but reenacting old patterns, it's all in there. So watch Russian Doll Season 2. And if you don't, listen to the podcast on Post Show Recaps because it's just beautiful, 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 beautiful. And so the last thing is this book that has really helped me. Um, It's called Why Does He Do That? And uh, abuse isn't a, it's not a gender thing. You know, it's, this book would be fine no matter what sort of situation you're in. But this book in particular focuses on uh, males who abuse sort of through controlling techniques. And it's by this person called Lundy Bancroft. And it's a book that's really helped me. And if any of these issues are relevant to you, then check it out. You can get it online. If you, if you can't find it, contact me or actually reach out to me with anything like this because this is stuff I always like to discuss and it's just like vitally important. Amazing. We'll put all of that into the show notes, of course, all the information. So, so if you were scrabbling around for a piece of paper and a pen, stop. I should have told you that at the beginning. Everything will be in the show notes. Thank you, Lisa. That was incredible. We, we, might, we might have to have a, a recurring section called Lisa's List and then you can bring back the, the many, many things. I know you cut three or four times as many things out as you brought to us. Sure. So at Crime Scene, we are eager to hear your feedback and your suggestions for future episodes. You can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene RHAP, that's S-E-E-N, or email us crimescenerhap at gmail.com. As we said at the beginning, if you want your true crime a day early, subscribe to our feed, robhasawebsite.com forward slash crime feed. Lisa, where are you? What are you doing and where can people follow you? Uh, I'm just living my normal life. Um, I'm pretty much only on Twitter. Oh, I'm in the patron Facebook group, of course. But um, yeah, only on Twitter. And my user handle is at Lisa Stanger. So Lisa, S-T-A-N-G-E-R. Terrific. I'm at Sarah Carradine and Mari is Mari Talks Too Much to like the number two. You can follow us there and give us your feedback and suggestions for future episodes or just uh, just say hello. So next time on Crime Scene, we're discussing Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, which revisits Warren Jeff's FLDS sect through Survivor Stories. You can watch it on Netflix and, again, send us your comments and questions. Thanks to Will from America for the theme music and Scott St. Pierre behind the scenes. Until next time, case Case closed. closed. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. 
Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.